This has been a production of Planet Amp Podcast, powered by Pinecast. Hi, this is Colin from Worse in the Industry. We have a lot of laughs on our show, and we get into some pretty heated topics, so it's important to remember that the views expressed by the hosts of Worse in the Industry are our own, and in no way are representations of the views held by the Planet Amp Podcast Network or Planet Amp as an organization, even when we're right. Yell at us, not them. Thanks, and enjoy the show. Actually, I got something to talk about. Do you guys know about Matthew McConaughey's brother? No, what? Hold on. No, I didn't know Matthew McConaughey had a brother. Is he in jail? Isn't he? No, his name's Rooster. Rooster, Rooster McConaughey. Yep, and he has he has three kids. Get ready for these kids' names. All right. With those kids' names. Madison Beaumont McConaughey. Margarita Olympia McConaughey, and by far the best one, Miller Lite McConaughey. That's not Miller Lite. Miller Lite, L Y T E. Margarita and Miller Lite. Miller Lite McConaughey. Miller Lite McConaughey. I think Miller Lite is. Let's go adopt Miller Lite McConaughey. No, Madison Beaumont. Okay, sorry. Because that really tells the story. Did they start as alcoholics or become them over time? And it clearly they fell into drinking because, like, Madison, that's a normal name for a person. Margarita? Yeah! Marguerite? Margarita technically? Okay. Like, we could, we could work with this. Miller Lite. It's not, Miller not time, everybody. They should have okay, here's called, they should have here's, made it Miller time. Here is his explanation. Brewster, is it true you named your children after beer? What happened was I always drank a lot of Miller Lite. <laughs> I always had it around the back of my truck in this big old box and basset hound. I got married. My wife gets pregnant and all my buddies are going, Hey man, get ready. Your life's going to change. You can't go riding around with that Miller Lite all the time because now you're getting ready to have a kid. And, and I went, you know, if things work out, I'll be able to take Miller Lite to church. <laughs> you know what? Fucking game, recognize game. Yeah, what you a, know what? That's a good yeah. fucking bit. That's a lifelong bit that you can, even if your kid changes their name. That's solid. Which that kid should change their name. That, no, that kid no. should absolutely change his name. Are you kidding? That kid is set up for life. That sounds like a fucking sponsorship. I mean, it sounds like a me. great way to get free beer. Yeah. Yeah. It's like walking to a gas station to go, actually. My name is Miller Lite. I'm Honestly, <laughs> if you went to like a Miller, if you went to like the Miller factory, absolutely. A gas station, every gas station attendant I know would be like, "Oh, that's fucking cool." It's ten ninety nine. Uh, they might if you get if you catch an owner on the right night, you'd probably get a tall boy out of it. I'd give somebody a tall boy if their name was Miller. Miller Lite. I, if if somebody in front of me in line was like, "My name's actually Miller Lite," and they showed me their fucking license and it said Miller Lite McConaughey, I would buy them a six pack of Miller Lite. Be like, I, "Here yeah. you go, friend." Enjoy. You go, 
buy Why a don't you go ahead and enjoy yourself? It says Miller Lite St. Peter now, so that way Colin will just buy me free beer forever. It doesn't work like that, Justin. I'll keep calling you Justin. But what if I change my name? To Miller, Miller Lite. Then that's my best friend, Justin, who's such an asshole. He changed his name to Miller Lite. Uh, and this is Colin, who's a dirty, dirty liar and won't buy me any beer. We had a verbal contract, Your Honor. And this man, this man right here. I can just see the judge already rubbing his temples. How many times are you guys going to take this to small claims court? As many times as it takes to get my free beer, Justin. He's said. just going to be like the lawyer from uh, Always Sunny. No, you're yes. going to be the lawyer from Always Sunny because we have you represent both of us. Yeah. You constantly have, have to, to walk between the hands. tables. Okay, so you were eating cereal while you were driving. <laughs> oh, God, yeah, the arbitration. <laughs> This isn't a starter car, this is a finisher car! Hey, hi, hello, and welcome back to another episode of Worst in the Industry podcast. The show where this troop of ape-like leftists uh, attempts to fling our truth poop into the uh, onlooking crowd that surrounds our enclosure. My name is Justin St. Peter, and I am an old-world ape. And I love apple cider, specifically the alcoholic kind. To my left. <laughs> it's Colin Stanley. To my left. Uh, I'm Tyler. Yeah. Alright. Now, uh, uh, I'm Tyler, and... <laughs> um... Be nice to art students. Yeah, as, as I said, we're back for yet another week. Uh, we haven't been shut down yet. They keep trying, but we don't answer the mail. They're gonna come fucking Waco us one I of these can't days. Wait, dude. Forestry service, the forestry service. Yeah, DNR is gonna come fucking. Wait, what's the, does NASA have an armed wing? They, uh, NASA does have a armed security team. It's really hard to get the patches. I don't. I don't want a security team. I want to get iced by the fucking space force. The space force? No. Yeah. Oh, in fucking. For All Mankind, which you guys need to fucking watch. I watched, like, the first two or three episodes. They bring guns to the moon. That seems like... Guns... Traditional guns in space are a bad idea. I feel like we could all agree on that. It's yeah, a bad yeah. idea. I mean, yeah, kinetic weapons are gonna be difficult in a zero-G environment. Anyway, we're gonna get into the... We can get into our hard sci-fi nonsense later. Today, we've gotta talk about some real dystopian nonsense... Of, uh, of a flavor that tastes like chickpeas. It ta well, it tastes like dairy, and eventually will taste like chickpeas, in part two. Uh, it's a lot of milk. A lot of thick yogurt. Or oh, oh, we got a lot of yogurt in this episode? Is it a, is, All right, is, it, well. is it a mangala of milk? That, honestly, that might be offensive, saying it that way. In fact, I'm going to say right now, it's he offensive drank, to he say drank it that a lot way of milk. in the context of this episode. So this episode, uh, <laughs> as we're dancing around, we're talking about Strauss Group Limited, um, which is a, a food uh, a food company um, based out of Israel. And the reason that we are talking about them is because, um, well, well, we'll get more into it in, in, in part two, um, but we want to talk about a company that directly, that basically mirrors the rise of and di directly benefits from and conversely encourages 
the Zionist movement. And we want to talk a little bit about Zionism. So up front, here's the disclaimer. Uh, we're going to operationalize our terminology, uh, as my old anthropology professor would say. Um, so we're going to explain what we mean when we say Zionism, because a lot of definitions get thrown around. And we're going to be using the term a lot, so I want it to be clear what we mean when we use it. So when, when we say Zionists um, and the project of Zionism, um, for those unaware, we are not referring to people of the Jewish faith, people who are ethnically Jewish. That's not what it's about. There are a lot of people who are anti-Zionists who are Jews, who are uh, who don't have a stance on the issue who are Jews. It is not a, it's not a catch-all term, just as the state of Israel is not meant to be representative of Jewish people or their beliefs. Um, it is, we are talking specifically about Zionists and specifically uh, Israel. Uh, and the, in their relations with the Strauss Group Limited and the context surrounding it. And, and Zionism in this context and by definition is not, um, it's not a religious movement necessarily. It is, a, it is an ideology that states that the, a specific portion of the land in the Levant, uh, otherwise known as the Holy Land, it's the area of the, uh, the Middle East, that includes uh, places like Syria and Jordan and Lebanon and Israel and Palestine, um, that Jews um, ancestrally owned this land, they have a right to this land, and they uh, have the right to establish an ethno-state uh, that excludes all others. Um, they, that, is, that is the core concept of Zionism. It is uh, essentially, it's, it's like if tomorrow a bunch of quebecois showed up in michigan and said actually the state is ours because we founded detroit that's kind of in, in a similar vein obviously it's a lot more complicated but that is the most base way to explain it uh now let's we can get into the real meat of the episode so those dgens from up country fucking come down and try to take us out i'll tell you what <laughs> jesus um, and, and it should bear, uh, it should also, if when we're talking about Zionism and Zionist, uh, proof that it is not about Jewish people and about the idea, ideology of Zionism. So there's a lot of Christian Zionists. Um, so clearly it's not because of their, you know, ties to Judaism for Christian Zionists is actually because at the end of time, they want to show up in Israel and kill all the Jews and claim the Holy Land because that's where they think Jesus is coming back. Uh, but you know, we'll skip past that. It's another episode. Um, uh, well, when we talk about, uh, fucking what for the family, we'll talk about that. So previous to world war one, uh, the Ottoman empire was basically the reigning superpower in the border region between, um, Europe and, uh, Asia. So Anatolia, what's now known as Turkey. Um, and this included, uh, the Ottoman empire also, uh, was in control of much the, the area of the Levant, um, specifically what we would now call modern-day Israel and Palestine. I can't so, believe Ikea had so much of a foothold there. <laughs> I fucking hate you. So, World War One ended in 1918, um, but the Ottoman Empire was pretty much out of the game uh, before the war officially ended. They, they'd been in decline for a long time. They were referred to as the sick man of Europe. They were on the out. Um, so... In 1917, um, the, uh, the British decreed the Balfour uh, Declaration, 
which basically stated uh, intent on the on part of the British Empire to establish a national homeland for Jews in the Levant. Um, so basically from the river to the sea, you'll hear the term from the river to the sea a lot. There is, I believe it's the Jordan River um, to the Mediterranean. There is a portion of land that that is what is described as Israel ancestrally or, or the kingdom of Israel um, when you refer to the ancient kings like David and Solomon. So um, basically... The British at this time, uh, there's a lot of anti-Semitism that's rampant through Europe. Fascism is on the rise, especially now that a lot of the industrial powers um, that would grow fascism have lost a world war and are more deeply impoverished. Um, they need a scapegoat. The scapegoat will become the Jews, as everybody who's familiar with World War II uh, understands. Um, and because of this, the British are facing a very uh, particular dilemma. They can either not do anything and just watch uh pogroms get committed against the jew uh, uh the jews in in uh the you know the regions under the command which happens all the time uh jews are typically referred to like uh, considered like a stateless people because they're so often used as these scapegoats they're often persecuted throughout the world so giving them a safe sanctuary to go to makes a lot of sense that said similar to what we talked about in the Dutch East India Company episodes, is it really is it really within the moral authority of a country to show up in another place in the world and enforce their values and opinions on that place? And that's what we're going to talk about. So, they, they put out this Balfour Declaration, this Declaration of Intent, stating that they're going to establish a national homeland for Jews in 1917. Um, Jews have been settling in this region uh, since the late 1800s. Um, that's when the Zionist movement really picked up steam. Jews have been talking about moving back to the Holy Land from Europe since the Middle Ages, since like the, uh, the uh, 11th century, 12th century. They've been talking about it. There's been Jewish scholars who said all Jews should move back to the Holy Land now, um, especially after some of those crusades by Christians were, were fended off. So um, basically... These Jews are showing up, and at first it's it's relatively okay. There's still some anti-Semitism uh, from the Arab population, but generally speaking, it's pretty cooperative. The Arabs had assisted the British in fending off the Ottoman Empire for the most part. Um, they didn't want to be ruled by this big, overarching uh, governmental body. They wanted independence. They wanted their right to self-determination, um, just as the Jews want. That's They're really seeking the same thing, is Jews don't want to be persecuted in every country that they go to and arabs want their own country over time tensions grow and grow british because the balfour declaration and because they're establishing what would become known as uh the mandate uh the british mandate of palestine or mandatory palestine even the naming of this is controversial at the time um because the arabs in the region don't refer to that region as palestine at the time it's uh Palestine, I believe it's F-A-L-E-S-T-I-N. So Palestine is actually an English uh, translation of a Hebrew term. And the Jews of the time didn't even want Palestine. They wanted to refer to it as the kingdom of Israel or the, uh, the nation of Israel. Um, so the compromise was instead of calling it what the people who are already living there call it, um, or even picking the proposed name by a lot of the Arab leaders, southern Syria, they pick a Hebrew-translated name. 
kind of showing their hand, kind of showing their intent that, yes, we're going to back the Zionist agenda, we're going to back the Zionist movement, period. Like, we're here for the Jews, we're here for the Zionists. If there's people there, it's going to be their problem. So things are starting to kind of mount up. There's a lot of tension building. You see a lot of protests from the local Arab population, obviously. And again, this kind of goes without saying. Throughout this, there is definitely one of the motivators for some of these Arab groups is anti-Semitism. So um, it's not, I don't want to make it seem like they're without fault in that. They are definitely, there's definitely some bigotry involved, but a lot of it is also, hey, these people are showing up in my, in my home. Uh, they're being assisted by a government that I don't recognize and they're establishing these, these bodies without my consent and without my approval. Uh, in 1922, there is a, there's an order in council to establish a legislative council for the Mandate of Palestine. Um, it, I believe it gives 10 um, appointed seats that were appointed by uh, the British government and 12 seats that were going to be elected. Um, they would give only, I believe, uh, 10 of those to Arabs, 2 to Christians, 8 to Muslims, and then the remaining 2 to Jews. However, none of the appointed seats would include Arabs. So um, a lot of the Arab leadership rejected this pr proposed uh, election and this format because they're saying, hey, we're 88% of the population. You're only giving us 43% of the seats. That's not equitable. That doesn't make any sense. Because again, most um, at this time, a lot of Arabs are still willing to work with Jewish settlers. Uh, these, a lot of these Zionist settlers are, they're not showing up on anybody's property and like kicking them out. Like... Is happening now that we're going to get into later they're they're buying land from you know arab fam wealthier arab families in the region um they're they're doing it the quote-unquote right way and in 1934 actually um a company of zionists funded by the british government would establish uh, uh the village of uh naharia which is actually uh they they built it on um a bronze age ruin so there was a there was an old village that used to exist um this coastal village uh where jews had like historically lived and they've built it back now they bought a bunch of plots from uh, i believe it's the tuni family the, or the tuini family uh they're a big greek orthodox family in lebanon um one of the like founding families uh or like big deal families from beirut um and so that will come into play in a minute but uh in 1935, um, a militant, uh, sorry, yeah, a militant uh, Arab group referred to as the Black Hand uh, begins a campaign of terror. Uh, they start uh, bombing uh, Zionist settlements, shooting Zionist civilians, uh, and having shootouts with uh, British and Zionist police. Um, this is after they've consistently tried to send Zionists back home. So it's it's not to say. It's not to excuse the violence, but it makes sense. The violence makes sense because they're, they, they see it as defending their homes. So again, we're not endorsing it, but it's understandable. Uh, in 1936, um, uh, essentially what had happened was um, the uh, Hilda and Dr. Richard Strauss, uh, they flee Nazi Germany. They are uh, with their with their two year old son Michael, um, they're German uh, Jews who are fleeing the Holocaust, and they come to Israel to create a better life um, for themselves and for their 
toddler. Um, they settle in Naharia. Um, they end up um, getting a couple of dairy cows and start growing some produce. That same year, 1936, is when the Arab Revolt begins. There's more and more pressure um, from the British. One of uh, a big time, like big name recognition Arab leader is killed. Um, and in response, there is a mass general strike. There are lots of protests. It gets violent. Um, there's a lot of violence committed against uh, the Zionist settlers, the Jewish settlers. And there is also a lot of violence from the British uh, and the Zionists and acting on the, on the Arabs. They would do a lot of retaliatory, retaliatory violence. So if Arabs, you know, blew up a troop transport, like a police, um, you know, a, a police convoy, they would uh, retaliate by smashing out the windows of a bunch of Arab shopkeepers in the area or, you know, setting somebody's for crops on fire. It, it would tit for tat. Um, essentially, because the Arabs didn't have established, um, like, police forces, really, just militias and, like, tribal um, communities. So it's harder to have, like, a formal form of warfare. So at this point, in 1936, it's, it's starting to very quickly become uh, a bloodbath. Um, it's, tensions are high, a lot of people are getting killed. Um, because of this, the British sends, uh, the Peel Commission, which the, the, basically they're there to determine what can be done, what should be done to resolve the situation. Um, they, uh, they determine by, I believe, uh, 19, what, 1938, I believe, uh, that the only solution or the most welcome solution would be a partition. They, they essentially pitch a two-state solution. Um, now, two prominent Zionist leaders at the time, um, Chaim uh, uh, Wiseman and uh, David Ben-Gurion, um, they, they support this. They're, they're big on it. They talk openly about it. They go to these, these speeches. They, they, you know, they're involved in a lot of the uh, the community action and organization around the Zionists. And they, they tout this as like, this is a great thing. And privately, in a letter to his son, uh, Ben-Gurion, uh, David Ben-Gurion, uh, writes that the uh, proposed partition is the first step um, in, quote-unquote, possession of the land as a whole. So even at this time, it's very clear that the plan... For Zionists, ideological Zionists, not just Jews fleeing the Holocaust, but Zionists specifically, the plan is never to peacefully cohabitate. It's never to make neighbors or become neighbors. It is to dominate and to own. It is establishing a state. For whatever, like, obviously there are valid reasons. I understand that when you're generationally abused in the way that Jews have been, that makes sense to want to do that. But it doesn't excuse what we're going to talk about. So by 1939, um, the, the Arab revolt has kind of lost a lot of steam because over, uh, over 5,000 Arabs uh, have been killed compared to the uh, about 400 Jews and about 200 British 
uh, in the area who were also killed during the revolt. So I believe it's um, it's like slightly higher than 88% of the casualties. It's like 92% of the casualties were Arab. So it's it's more than is just regular for the populations in the region. Um, and I, and there's more and more Jews coming in every day. So again, it's it's very clear that one side is being backed by a Western power with the resources of an entire military. And one side are people who've been living here for like generations and just want to be able to live their lives. Okay, so at, at the end of that, at the end of the Arab revolt, one in 10 Arab men uh, have been killed, wounded, imprisoned, or exiled. So if it wasn't you, it was somebody you knew. So if it wasn't you, it was your dad, it was your brother, it was your cousin. You were either shot dead during a revolt, someone beat to shit so hard, you had to be go, you know, receive medical care, or they just throw you in prison or kick you out of the fucking uh, region. Just, like, send you out, make you flee. So it's not, uh, it's not ideal to be Arab uh, in the Levant right now. In the, uh, in the two years since the Strausses um, had uh, a pur purchased those two dairy cows and begun... Um, growing produce, they had been able to grow their modest family farm uh, into a 20-cow cow shed. So they were actually uh, able to acquire quite a few more cows and a decent size more land and uh, started focusing on dairy. And it's at this point that they sell that 20-cow cow shed and they form Strauss Naharia Dairy, um, which is the first family, like, real company, um, the precursor to Strauss Group Limited. I know this feels like homework, but it's, I swear, we're getting there. <laughs> so, um... Is there going to be a test after this? There's not going to... The test is whether or not, uh... <laughs> you think I'm anti-Semitic? Yes. Cool. <laughs> so... That depends. Colin, finish this sentence. Greeks are the what of the Mediterranean? Greeks. Bingo. boy so uh in uh, 1947 um so this is there there have been basically an endless stream of uh of jewish refugees in fact in the interim uh the british government would form what they would call the jewish brigade which was an all jewish volunteer force um that they stationed i believe uh, near the sinai canal uh, the point, uh, the ba basically the purpose uh, of them was to assist uh, fleeing Jews and Jewish refugees, both from uh, the Holocaust in Europe and also throughout um, uh, Muslim and Christian countries uh, uh, in you know Northern Africa, Middle East, and, and Europe, um, to facilitate them settling uh, in what would become Israel, uh, in the Levant, uh, in Palestine, mandatory Palestine at this time. Um, and uh, a lot of these guys would either go on to form militias, had been uh, militia members in uh, mandatory Palestine previously, um, and a lot of them would go on to help found and become a part of uh, the Israeli Defense Force, the IDF, which is the organization that exists to this day um, that, you know, when you see on Twitter, like, a, um, <laughs> like a girl in desert camo doing a TikTok dance... 
or uh, a blue check Twitter account joking about shooting a journalist from a sniper's nest. That's the idea. <laughs> um, you know, they're fun. They have a great sense of humor. Bad video production quality. But yeah, they really don't put a whole lot of money behind it, but you can see that they really care about it. They, I don't even think they really care. It's, it's weird. Like they do, it feels like they have, they feel like they have an obligation to do it, to post, but not, they don't feel like the obligation to make it good. Just to be like weird and like passive aggressive and shitty. Um, which it's so strange that an entire fucking country full of people acts like a jilted ex-girlfriend. Anyway, 1947 was referred to as the, uh, the, the Palestine war, Palestinian war. Um, Jews, uh, uh, not Jews, I'm sorry, but, um, Zionists refer to this as the War of Independence, which is pretty fucking ironic, considering the fact that there, can you have, can you become independent when you're taking land from other people? Who's to say? It's, it's like if we called the French and Indian War the War for Independence. It's like if we called, um, the Trail of the Trail of Tears, the independent skirmish. Like, it's not... It's, I mean, there was 40 years of war against, like, directly against Native American tribes in the 1800s. It's yeah, we and we, we have at least movement. a modicum of, of, like, honesty to call them the Indian Wars and not the, the wars that saved the Union. You know, it's, 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 a, little, it's a little fucking repulsive to, to refer to something like this as the War of Independence. But uh, essentially what happens is on, I believe, uh, May 14th, uh, 1948, um, the British would withdraw uh, from Mandatory Palestine, dissolving the mandate. The entire interim from 1947 through to 1949, and if you ask a Palestinian from 47 to 2021, uh, an event called, referred to as the Nakba, or the Palestinian Catastrophe... Uh, as others refer to it as, um, was taking place, which was essentially ethnic cleansing. It was an ethnic cleansing. Um, some would use the, the term genocide um, to refer, refer to the, um, dis, the forced displacement, uh, killing, and brutalization of the Palestinian people. Uh, about a quarter of a million, sorry, three quarters of a million Palestinians were forced out of homes their families had inhabited for generations in some cases hundreds of years um because zionists believe they have a uh a superseding right to that land they were forced out at gunpoint um and uh most of those people who were forced out that that three quarters of a million most of them or their descendants still live in refugee camps or have a stateless uh, are, are still stateless, meaning they are not the citizen of every country in the world. Um, they, they, there's the, there are camps throughout the Middle East and Eastern Europe where Palestinians live and places and cities where Palestinians live where it's, it's, it's meant to be temporary for refugees, but they've been living there for two generations because they were forced out 80 years ago. Um, basically, the day that the um, British would draw, re, uh, you know, draw, draw themselves out of the Mandate of Palestine and dissolve the uh, Mandatory Palestine. That is 
um, what the Israelis refer to as their Independence Day. That's when they declared the state of Israel and defined mostly by the borders that we see nowadays from the river to the sea. Um, it also marked the second phase of the Palestinian war. Uh, and again, it's, it's, it's really, these are loose terms. So um, a lot of armies, a lot of volunteer forces, basically just very populous militias um, showed up. They had encircled um, Israel, uh, what would become the state of Israel, when uh, they had discovered the Nakba was happening at these you know, almost a million people were being forced out of their homes. Um, so you had Jordan and uh, I believe Syria, uh, but I, I think it had a different name at the time. Basically, all of these different uh, militant groups had encircled Israel. They were prepared to basically force them to leave the Palestinians alone. Um, but that didn't really work out. Pal uh, the Israelis obviously had um, a lot more resources at their disposal. I wonder why. And so, during this phase two of that war, um, they were able to outfox a lot of the Arab forces and um, were not forced to permit the Palestinians back and were uh, essentially, by virtue of just being better at the game they were playing, uh, allowed to keep their state. We can, we're going to talk about the Arab League uh, a decent amount next episode, um, but that's... This is the Arab League is like a uh, an Arab version of the the United uh, sorry uh, European Union um, slash United Nations kind of it's it's like a diplomatic economic thing so from uh, Oman to Morocco you can basically draw a straight line and that's the Arab League um, and they also provided troops and helped organize things but uh, it didn't work out um, and the ethnic cleansing was able to happen uh, pretty much unchecked. Um, uh, some uh, obviously there was casualties on all sides but the israelis definitely got more than they gave um when it came to land and gave more than they got when it came to casualties so um back to the strauss company um it's very convenient on their website as we found with uh bear ag and uh nestle they just skip a chunk of time because yeah, yeah weird how they do that weird how you go from like, oh yeah, we formed a business. Yeah, let's just talk about. <laughs> we'll skip like seven years forward and pretend that we weren't here, didn't benefit from all these people being kicked off the land that we could use for our dairy cows and for building processing plants. And don't worry about it; it's fine. Don't worry about it. Because again, a lot of that land in the earlier period of time, it was gainfully um, gotten. It was bought. Um, you don't see a lot of that after this point, uh, unless it's from. Uh, Israeli Jew to Israeli Jew. Um, so, 1956, Michael Strauss, uh, if you'll remember, he was the two-year-old that fled with his parents from Nazi Germany. He's now uh, about 20 years old. Uh, he returns um, from Europe. He had been uh, training in Europe as a milk technician. <laughs> not, not a better place in the world to train for that. Uh, and he basically came back to help, uh, basically like get back to the family business. We're going to work this dairy farm. We're going to become this top dairy manufacturer. Uh, fuck yes. Uh, and we're going to bring we're a lot gonna, of money to Israel. Touch all the cow more importantly, in the Levant. Be because the Strausses are like dyed in the wool Zionists, like hardcore. 
they always have been. They always will be. They were founded by Zionists. They flaunt it proudly on their website. That is how that com- this company is ideologically aligned, which is why we're given the context of what all, that means. All I know is uh, I need to update my Tinder profile to have my job be a milk technician. <laughs> no, I think you mean milking technician. Oh, uh, we. <laughs> I went to... There is a dairy farm uh, near where I live that uh, they it's like open to the public. They sell ice cream there. Um, and I went there with my girlfriend. And <laughs> there's this little like viewing area because like they, they like they have kids like go on like field trips there and they have this little like observation room like the penguin exhibit at the Detroit Zoo. But instead of penguins, it's a big milking robot. It has this big automated arm that comes swinging in and all this like fucking freaky matrix shit. And I looked at my girlfriend and I was like, why don't we put you in there? See what happens. <laughs> and she's like, why don't we put you in there? I'm like, it would probably probably like deglove my penis. She's like, I know. <laughs> oh. Fucking peel me like a banana. Yeah, that's gonna be, uh... You know, like, like, when you got... You know when you used to play soccer, and you gotta pull that sock off and, like, peel the shin guard off? That's what yeah. it would do to all my dick skin. You know how when you, uh... When you're, when you're cooking salmon, you gotta take the, the scales off the back? <laughs> You'd use the back of your knife and just fucking scrape all my fucking... <laughs> no, it just peels right off if you put some boiling they water They fucking on peeled it. my dick like a daikon radish. Oh yeah, that's right. You just gotta render a little bit of the fat out from underneath the skin. It'll slip right I'm off. I'm all raw and exposed down there. <laughs> so just sensitive. And mushy down there. Oh, I feel like the guy from the beginning of Hellraiser. I'm all wet. <laughs> oh, great movie, Hellraiser. Hellraiser's a hell of a fucking movie. What it's the fuck? Clive Barker is too gay to be alive. Film. Jesus Christ, what a man. man man's fucked up. Uh, <laughs> I actually read his book of short stories, uh, short stories, Book of Blood. There's one where the whole concept is that these two gay guy, these two fucking gay guys, uh, one who is not in love with the other, take a take a banal trip through the Eastern European countryside, as one is constantly just in his head like, I should have never fucked this guy in that public bathhouse because now he follows me around everywhere and I can't fucking stand him. And then they watch two giants made of people just fight each other and it's horrifying <laughs> and then he talks about how years down the line one of their bodies will just be bones in the dirt um it's like kind of horny but also fucked up i'm a big fan um <laughs> anyway <laughs> so in 1959 um uh Michael and Richard Strauss uh, petition uh, the Israeli Minister of Industry and Trade uh, for a loan. They'd hit some financial hardships, and on the spot, he provides it to them. Uh, and because of that, they're able to start manufacturing ice cream. I believe they're the first manufacturer of ice cream in Israel at this point. Um, well, somebody's got to supply those funny Turkish ice cream. Then. <laughs> it's funny Turkish ice cream. <laughs> Uh, it's now, the, uh, they, you think they're gonna give you your cone, but then they take it away, and they and then they put it back, and they but they put it in another cone, and they, so it comes out and it still has the cone on it, and they put like three more scoops on top, and then they give it to you, and they like flip it upside down and put it back. That kind of shit 
if somebody did that to me in real life... You'd, you'd kill a man, wouldn't you? I don't endorse acts of violence because I think it's an unethical way of dealing with a, a situation. But sometimes the only way out is to pull a and I don't think you should do that's bad you shouldn't do that but I the reasoning I'm just if I if an Italian ice cream vendor ever taunts me with a cone with his big long ice cream scoop I'm going to buy a bump stock <laughs> are you marking the time down so you know when to start cutting no, yeah. I, I want to leave this one as a surprise for drunk me when I'm editing. <laughs> no, that's gonna be a good. That's gonna be a guitar riff. Yeah, that's gonna be a. We'll just cut, cover over his name, but then leave the rest of it in. So, 1959, they get that loan. Now, uh, all the time that Michael Strauss was in Europe, or at least for a big portion of it, he was working with um, the company that would become Dannon, the so French-based dairy company. So, you know, you think Dannon yogurt? That's the animals. The animals? The animals? The animals? The little don't, drink of don't the Don't worry. They make the right decision eventually. Okay, thank, thank God. God. I can I can still consume animals. Uh, I'm gonna drink oh. animals. Well, not until we do the Danimals episode. Full. And it's Dude, just the, like, them oh. boys slap. Them boys slap so hard. So, um, basically, he, he had worked with a company. Um, he'd worked with Danon, uh, with the company that would become Danon, and he... Uh, th- had found out the process, just the general process for making cream cheese. And they, again, Israel at this point is a very young country. They don't have a lot of the commodities that we normally have, um, even though it's it's founded on, uh, you know, war crimes and the the blood of the Arab population that they 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 shunted out. Um, but, um, so so he brings this recipe back. Um, in 1962, Danon threatens a lawsuit. What's up? You said, uh, we're we gonna do an episode about Danon and find they were, you know, might be, might have done some horrible atrocities against humanity, but we all know if there's one comp- yogurt company that committed war crimes, it's Gogurt. Oh, I thought it was Activia. No, nah, Activia Go-Gurt. keeps you regular. No, yeah. they keep Jamie Lee Curtis hostage. What's, wait, what did Gogurt do? I don't know. What I'm sure they did something. I'm sure they did something. Is Gogurt owned by Dana? I think there's like a MAGA shithead involved with Gogurt. I could be wrong. Now I need to find out. Hold on. Yeah, no, let's... let's no, Gogurt is Yoplay. Yeah, we're pausing. Yeah, it's Yoplay. Don't, okay. Don't yep. pause the episode. Keep the fucking mics rolling. I want to uh, find out in uh, real time what Yogurt company I'm allowed to buy from. Also known as Yoplay Tubes in Canada. Oh! Yoplay, Yoplay Tubes? <laughs> Like you're gonna I come up, it. you're gonna come up to a guy in the street and be like, "Yo, play tubes." Yo, you wanna, <laughs> yo, play you wanna yo play tube? Yo play tubes. <laughs> it's like a question. Oh, 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 oh. Okay, and yo play is owned by General Mills. God damn yep. it! Fuck! How am I supposed to stay regular? <laughs> you can't. How am I supposed you, to get the can't. good bacteria? One's Activia. It's gonna be like Nazi von Nazi Smith. The third. Fucking goddamn it. The f- Danon. Danon? Well, we better find yeah, out that Danon's okay when we do our Danon episode. 
because otherwise I'm out of yogurt options. Chobani, Chobani's probably they they might be owned by YoPlay now that I think about it. Yeah, they, they think they're they're just they're like they're Greek. A, yogurt. They're a yogurt subsidiary. <sighs> the the goddamn yogurt monopoly. <laughs> the yogurt big yogurt is keeping me down. Big fucking yogurt. Oh no, you can't say big fucking yogurt. That is the cum lube, uh, <laughs> interest group. Uh, big, uh, uh, big fucking yogurt. Yeah, all four of those companies. Yeah, I refer to cum lube as fucking yogurt. Yogurt. So <laughs> there you go. So you're gonna stop, or you're gonna never refer to anything again, because I'm gonna remove your tongue from your head. Hey, baby, as long as you put it with the sundown chat, I don't mind where you take it. <laughs> Yes, to the deepest pits of hell it goes. Your ass? Yeah, sure. Yeah, close it's, enough. It's the same thing. It's I've eaten pretty much an entire package of Duke sausage showed about nine hours. Yeah, it is gonna be. Your asshole Oh no somebody planted a eucalyptus grove around the lip of a methane cave. Dannon does the same thing that Nestle did where they would uh give samples of uh a breast milk substitute. Fucking French. Every goddamn time I want to enjoy a delightful dairy treat, some fucking <laughs> motherfucker oh. is standing God. in my way. Some goddamn wee-wee baguette son of a okay, bitch. Okay, there's a, there's a quote from an Indonesian pediatrician that said, Selling formula is like the killing fields, in my opinion. The babies will die of diarrhea, and they will die of malnutrition. And they're Indonesian, Fuck. so they know about killing fields. Oh, boy. Yeah, thanks, uh... Okay. Well, thanks, this, East India Company. Thank you we'll for the that. tangent where we figured out that we can't eat yogurt anymore. Um, yeah, sorry for the sidebar, everyone. So in 1962, uh, future... <laughs> future piece of shit company, Dannon... Uh, files a lawsuit against this uh, uh, Strauss Dairy um, for stealing their cream cheese recipe. So Richard Strauss, Dr. Richard Strauss, travels to Danon headquarters in France and leaves uh, both with a royalty agreement and a know-how. Uh, so... How can they prove that... that what? So that's the thing, is that, so, I mean, these companies, they, what they'll do is they will, like, they have, they, they, like, copyright the process for making their product. So for this cream cheese, like, they, they protect their, their process. So when Strauss goes there, uh, a know-how is basically, our products are similar because we understand the, the process was taught in the same way that your process works but we are not stealing your process. We just learned how to make cream cheese the same way. It's it's cream cheese. Yes, but, like, cream cheese varies. Like, it's cheese. Cheese always varies in the exact process for how to make it. That's how you can copyright these things and have them legally protected, which, as we know, is bullshit. Um, but, yeah, so he ends up leaving with know-how and a royalty agreement and uh, basically sets the stage for uh, a pretty... Nice uh, partnership to be coming uh, around the bend. And uh, again, like we see these big hops in time, right? If you go to the Strauss company's website, they, they talk about, um, they talk about, oh yeah, we flipped this. They boom flipped it. <laughs> a lawsuit flip it? 
into like good terms and then uh in 1963 um basically uh, michael uh michael strauss would go to um the uh company futurely known as dannon uh and uh, would learn more about their processes for uh making these dairy products and he would basically become an expert and use it uh for the strauss benefit um now, in 1967, uh, there was a little thing called the Seven, uh, the Seven Days War. Uh, I believe, seven days, mm-hmm. six days. I got a. Uh oh, did I just close the tab days. that I needed? Seven Day War, um, and the Seven Day War. Where's my notes? So I typed this part. Why did I type part of my notes and write part of my notes? What the fuck is wrong with me? Oh. No, it is the six day one. No. Well, I wrote seven days because it's 1967. <laughs> See, this is how much you should listen to this episode. Uh, this is this is indicative of the overall quality of my research. Um, so basically, what's up happening in 1967? Um, a lot of these Arab belligerents uh, and Arab na- uh, neighbors are, um, they're trying to force Israel, because basically they, they still don't recognize Israel as a state. They, they see Israel as a, a government put together by people that just committed an ethnic cleansing, who hopped onto land that they haven't physically been in for thousands of years, for the most part. There are still Jews who are living, living in the Levant. Um, I don't mean to erase that fact, but for the most part, they were a minority. Most Jews had fled the Holy Land. So what ends up happening after, because Israel in, the, in this meantime, since since the, the Palestinian Wars, they've not been sitting on their hands. They've, you know, invaded the Sinai Peninsula. Um, they've, they've been doing all these things because the, the neighboring companies are trying to squeeze them. They're trying to limit their access to trade. They're trying to limit their access to water. They're trying to limit their overall resources so they will concede to their demands that they allowed the Palestinians to return and reclaim their property. Um, however, these tensions are really starting to ratchet up and uh, basically erupts into a... Uh, they erupt into this violence that becomes known as the Seven Days War. It's or Sorry, Six Days War. It's resolved in six days uh, because of how violent it is. It's a lot of airstrikes. We're not going to get into a ton, but it's, it's clear that this is like... It's, it's referred to as, uh, uh, I believe also, the, uh, the setback. I think that is the, uh, the Arabic term for it. Um, because uh, Israel like gained ground uh, against Arab forces. Um, so they, they had basically pressured them to a point and then lost a bunch of ground. Um, and the reason this is relevant is because this whole time... The relationship between Strauss Group Limited, their trade capacity, and the uh, capacity of Israel are intertwined. They are they are dependent on the Zionist agenda continuing, so that they can continue making money. If Zionism dies out, Strauss Group Limited, their money dies out. They will not continue to make money if there is an Arab government. Because as a Zionist-founded, backed, and controlled company, 
more than likely they'd seize their assets because their company runs on blood money and they're not going to be very forgiving. And a lot of these Arabs are extremely anti-Semitic. And even if they hadn't pushed out Palestinians, they'd probably still be pretty aggressive towards them anyway, just because it's there are these religious conflicts. Not all of them. You would assume that it'd be much fewer, but there's still that kind of line throughout. And you still see that sometimes when you talk, uh, when you see these interviews with uh, certain Arab leaders and Muslim leaders and certain people within uh, Palestine. Like, there is definitely a legitimate um, concern, but sometimes it does fall into the category of bigotry, which again, we don't want to, like, write off. It happens. It's awful. But that is not why, for the most part, they're doing this. And uh, in 1968, um, the Israeli government uh, uh, provides an award to Strauss uh, Company Limited for the tastiest treat. They get the tastiest dessert award, which... Oh my goodness. That sounds exactly like something the SS would have given Nestle. It's literally a country that it's, at this oh. point... It's 20 it's years the old. It's treat. And it's 20 years old. And they're like, yeah, like, <laughs> we're still, like, establishing all this shit here. Here's your here's your goody good boy tasty treat award. Let me give you a pat gold on the Gold star for you. And uh, the following year in 1969, uh, Dannon and Strauss uh, formally, uh, formally announce a, a partnership uh, wherein Dannon buys 28% of Strauss Group Limited's shares. It's a huge influx of capital for them. They're obviously extremely limited in their trade capacity because of uh, Israel's limited trade capacity. So partnering with such a massive dairy company in Europe really opens the doors for them to really start making that fucking cheddar. And more importantly, funneling it further into the Zionist project. And as we're going to see in episode two, the IDF specifically. So that's that's it for this first episode. We're we're giving you a lot of the context and the next episode is going to focus on what that means now and also what we are able to do about it and what uh Palestinian activists and Arab activists involved in the matter have asked both of themselves and of non-Palestinians and non-Arabs uh who stand in solidarity with them. We're going to talk about that a lot and how it affects us in America. All right. I know it's a lot, well, guys, but we'll we'll like yeah, fart that's, that's, later. Yeah, that's the, it was it was a very information dump heavy episode today. We tried to tried to sneak in a few yucks for you, but uh, yeah, I mean it's we're we're covering some heavy stuff right now. You know, we uh, we're gonna we're gonna encroach on this territory, and as 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 simple and complex as this issue is the history of it is complex the issue when it comes down to it really isn't yeah it's yeah. you know it's very clear and and again like i said we're gonna talk about this more in episode two but it bears mentioning in this episode israel is an apartheid state they absolutely they treat their citizens who are non non-israeli jews even jews who aren't israel uh, israeli or um like white they treat them as second-class citizens. There's a there was a group of African Jews. Uh, I don't I don't I I believe they hadn't converted that they were born Jewish, um, 
who had come to Israel claiming a right of return, which is something that the state of Israel, um, basically, it's, it's the idea that any Jew anywhere in the world has a right to move to Israel, become a citizen, and own land. Um, they basically were going to deny these black Jews the right of return because they were black. And the only reason they let them settle in the suburb that they did is because they made them sign these agreements uh, and, and agree to the terms where when their children were of age, they would have to join the IDF. Mm. Um, and they also uh, uh, sterilized a bunch of non-white Jews, um, which we will talk about as well, and invited um, literal neo-Nazis uh, into Israel to become uh, full Israeli Jew citizens. Like, literally guys who are big fans of swastikas and Nazism. Because Zionism would rather get in bed with Nazis than let um, Arabs have rights. Also, Netanyahu is a Hungarian name. We're going to talk about that too, but it's it's very fr- annoying to me. It's not a Jew. It's, it's, not, a, it's not a Hebrew name. It's literally Hungarian. It's uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, former, <laughs> former prime minister of uh, Israel, claims that he has this coin in his office and he claims that the inscription on it translates to Netanyahu and it's proof that um, he and his family have a right uh, to the land, but that would be impossible because the coin is much older than Hungarian and his last name is Hungarian. It's the kind of, it's the kind of weird bullshit that you see happen a lot in like far right psychos in America where they like, they're like Mormons. <laughs> they like to just make yeah, up. They, they like really to make like up history. Random bullshit. <laughs> it's a good time. I'm having a great time. I'm definitely not dying inside. Put on your special underwear. Put on your special underwear and come away with us in episode two. Well, thank you all for listening once again to uh, another extra extra heavy episode of uh, Call Me Fat in the Industry podcast. Nope, just a just a high gravity episode here. Saying that I have an orbit because of how fat I am? Fuck you, Colin. You know what? Yes. <laughs> I love you, buddy. I love you, too. Bye, everybody. All right. I, I love the audience as well. I love you. Goodbye. Love you guys. Follow us on socials. Oh, God, yeah. We well, we plug should plug our socials those. Like at all That's today. fine. I'll put, them, I'll put them in the show notes. It's fine. Okay. All right. Good. All right. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.